Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Every year on October 31st, there is a open house at the Bertrand House, a Halloween open house so that people trick-or-treating through the neighborhood can bring their kids, can come inside and warm up, have some coffee or hot chocolate and recover their sanity before going back out and trick-or-treating some more. And one of the things I love to see towards the end of the evening is what kids always do once they're done uh, going through the neighborhood and collecting candy. They always do this interesting little ritual before they dig in. They take all the candy, they pour it out of the bag or the pumpkin or whatever they've been using, pillowcase, to collect candy, and they, they spread it out. And they sort through it. And they put the types of candy that go together, together. And they make them match so they can see how much of each thing they got, know how much candy they have, and uh, decide like how to pace themselves. So just a little candy every day can last forever. No, they don't do that last part. Um, but, but the rest, they do. They catalog it all. They, they look at all the good stuff that they got. And, and they, they, they get a sense for the whole before they start whittling away at it. There's a moment to kind of reflect on, on all of the, the candy that was collected. Kids do something similar at Christmas time. At a certain point, maybe you grow out of this, but I remember as a kid, one of the important things to do once we'd opened all the presents was to kind of set them all out and survey the hall, kind of see how much we'd gotten, what new stuff we had, kind of sort it, put the stuff that went together together, all of that, kind of get a sense for the whole of how, how enriched we had been by all of these gifts. It's a very human thing to do when you receive a gift, kind of take inventory, right, to see where you're at now. You've, you've accumulated a lot more candy, a lot more toys, uh, maybe a lot more other stuff. When we receive good gifts, we think about what it means for the future. And that's what we need to do in Romans 8 when it comes to the good gift of the Spirit. We've been seeing throughout Romans 8 what you might think of as benefits of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That we as believers in Christ have been given this gift of the Holy Spirit, and like other gifts... There's a lot more to it than you realize at first. You have to take some time and, and do a little inventory and think about the, the, the many ways in which the Holy Spirit enriches us, the many benefits that come from receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps in many different ways. We've already seen some of those ways. In our text this morning, we're going to see one particular new way that the Holy Spirit helps, which is intercession. And we'll think about what it means that the Holy Spirit intercedes in our behalf. And Paul's already told us the Holy Spirit helps us in many different ways. If you look back at uh, Romans 8, we've touched on some of the things that the Holy Spirit does for us. Remember, the Holy Spirit was given to us as a gift by the Son, by Jesus himself. If you 
flip back in your Bible a few, uh, a few pages to the Gospel of John. In John chapter 14, we actually read Jesus' words where he explains this gift that will be given. Jesus says, this is uh, John 14, starting in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So that's the gift of the Holy Spirit that Jesus specifically describes as a helper. As a helper, the Holy Spirit will come to help you and to comfort you. And then throughout Romans 8, Paul is pointing to the different ways in which the Spirit helps and comforts. But the Spirit, we saw earlier, helps us by indwelling us, by living within us, by giving us strength, encouragement. In verse 14 of Romans 8, we see the Spirit does more than dwell us. The Spirit also leads us and guides us and gives us direction. The Spirit also, as we saw in verse 16, bears witness within us with our spirit. The Spirit testifies, in other words, to the truth of who we are in Christ. These are benefits of having the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a sign and seal, a guarantee of our inheritance in Christ. Because you have the Spirit now, you can trust that you will receive everything that is promised to the children of God. The Spirit is is the guarantee of that. The Spirit is also at work sanctifying us. We're certainly not as good as we could be, but the Spirit is already at work within us. Even though the the grip of sin is strong, is powerful, the Spirit already helps us in the war against sin. The Spirit directs us. The Spirit builds us up. All of these things are results or benefits of having this gift of the Holy Spirit. They're little signs for hope, like tangible things that we can hold on to. But now Paul gives us something more, something else, something that goes a little deeper. The Holy Spirit helps us in all of these ways, but the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. And that's what we see in our text. So, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So the likewise there connects this information with all of the stuff that we've been told before, all of the other benefits of the Spirit. Likewise, in addition to all of that, the Spirit does more. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, Paul says. Weakness here refers to the whole range of human weakness, the 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 suffering, the, the weakness, the uh, finitude that we experience in this life, the weakness that we experience in the face of sin, for example, and also the timidity of our confidence and our hope. All of that weakness, all the stuff you can point to in yourself and, and, and be disappointed by, the stuff in yourself that you're not proud of and you'd rather not share, that weakness The Spirit helps us in. The Spirit comforts us. He goes on to say, for we do not know what to pray for. We do not know what to pray for. Now, the weakness that Paul has in mind here is not just weakness when it comes to prayer. He's not just saying, we're bad prayers. 
And so it's a good thing we have the Spirit because the Spirit can help us pray. He's not thinking so much of our ignorance of how to pray, like we don't know how to pray, the manner of prayer. We need the technique taught to us. It's more to do with the content of prayer. We don't know how to pray. We don't know what to pray for. We're not sure. There are situations in life where because of our weakness, we don't actually know what to pray for. If you've ever found yourself in a situation where it's just not as simple as as sending up a prayer and saying, God, do this, this, and this, and my problem will be solved. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation where, honestly, you don't know what would need to happen for things to be better. But it's hard to imagine what the right thing to pray for is. You just don't know what words to say. We do not know what to pray for as we ought. The Spirit helps us. When he says pray for as we ought here, again, he's not thinking so much of our duty to pray, although, of course, we have a duty to pray. He's thinking more in terms of uh, we don't know how we ought to pray. We don't know what we should ask God to do exactly. Like, what would be the right thing? We're we're uncertain. We don't have a good grasp on, on what God's will would be in a situation like this. We don't know what would be for the best in a situation like this, which I think is a good way of characterizing weakness. To be in a situation where you have the power of God at your disposal. Imagine the, the scenario, almost like the, the, the fairy tale scenario of the three wishes, right? Imagine being given your three wishes and literally not knowing how to use them. Like not being able to, to have the wisdom or the insight to know what should happen. That's the kind of weakness oftentimes that we do feel when we look at the world and the situation that we're in, the suffering that we endure, those around us, and it's just hard to form the words that would solve this. Like we have this desire for it to be fixed, for it to be healed, but we wouldn't begin to know where to start. And then when we have a thought of what God ought to do, then we have this other consideration like, well, well, what would be the right thing for God to do? Because we know sometimes we can pray for things that aren't according to God's will. Whenever you pray for vengeance on your siblings, for example, it may not be according to God's will. Whenever you pray for prosperity, whenever you pray for your ship to come in or for your numbers to be called or whatever, it may not be according to God's will. And so that adds another complexity and uncertainty. And in those moments of weakness, the Spirit himself intercedes for us, Paul says. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. A couple of things to notice there. First of all, he doesn't say the Spirit itself. He says the Spirit himself. The Holy Spirit is one of the three persons of the Trinity and and is properly referred to as a person, not a thing. Oftentimes, we we make that mistake of thinking of, you know, Father, Son, and it. The Father, the Son, and the force. You know, the Holy Spirit is sort of the thing in which we live and move and have our being. It binds all things together. You can sense disturbances in the Spirit Um, that's not what the Holy Spirit is, or rather, who the Holy Spirit is. 
Paul refers to the Holy Spirit himself, not itself, the Holy Spirit as a person of the Godhead working with us and in us. A minor point, perhaps, but an important one. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. What's interesting about this is when we think about interceding, it's not usually the Holy Spirit we think of. When we talk about interceding, intercession between God and human beings, the the person of the Trinity who comes to mind is the Son, right? It's the Son, Jesus Christ, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, who makes intercession for us. The Son, Jesus Christ, who is our high priest. But here, Paul is saying, yes, and the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. This business of intercession, there's more to it than we often realize. Christ is interceding for us in the court of heaven, in the presence of God. But the Spirit intercedes in our hearts. So that you begin to see in a passage like this, once again, how salvation is a Trinitarian work. That in the whole work of salvation, you see all of the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all of them at work for our salvation. You think about what's happening in intercession. Christ is in the presence of the Father, seated at the right hand of the Father, making the case for us, speaking for us on our behalf. But here with us, indwelling us, is the Spirit who Paul says is also interceding for us. The Son gave us the Spirit as a gift, and it's part of this connectedness. So that intercession works almost like terrible analogy, but but, uh, in the days before technology, the way that kids communicated with one another was cups and string. You pull the string taut between the two cups, and the sound would vibrate down the line, and you could kind of make out what people were saying to you, there was a tether, a connection between the two points that made the communication possible. It's as if when you think about intercession, we need to think about that tether, that tie, that what we're being told is between the throne of God and and your heart, there's a tie, there's a line that is stretched down which this signal passes, this intercession takes place. And if you wonder whether or not it's a secure line because it stretches quite a distance, all you need to know is that God is on either side of it. The Son is on one side and the Spirit is on the other. The Son in the presence of the Father interceding for us and the Spirit in our hearts interceding for us as well. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words which is the third time in the last few verses that we've been introduced to this idea of groaning. If you remember, last time we saw all creation groans. All creation is groaning in anticipation of freedom from the yoke of sin. And that reality led Paul to draw a parallel. Like creation was groaning, but we also groan. So we go from the groaning of creation to our own personal groaning. Verse 22, creation groans. In verse 23, we ourselves groan 
And now in verse 26, rather, the spirit groans within us. A groaning too deep for words. In other words, even the inarticulate groanings of our hearts are spirit-led, are instilled in us by the spirits. These groanings may be uh, inarticulate. There's no word to them. But that doesn't mean there's no content, no meaning to these groanings. They transcend words, but they have meaning. You might argue that the groanings too deep for words contain more than what can be put into words, not less. The Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows He who searches hearts here, again, this is Trinitarian. The Father is the one who searches hearts. The Father throughout Scripture is described as one who searches the hearts of human beings. And here, when he searches our hearts, when the Father looks down and searches our hearts, the Spirit within us speaks for us. When the Father looks down to interrogate our hearts, we have the Spirit within us to speak on our behalf. And so when the father looks, he knows, Paul says, what is the mind of the spirit? And sometimes we'll talk about having the mind of Christ or the mind of the spirit. And, and what the New Testament authors are referring to there is this idea of, of having a sanctified mind, conformed more and more to the image of Christ. But here, knowing the mind of the spirit This is a little different. We're we're referring here to knowing the mind of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's mind. Or you might think of it this way, um, because, of course, I mean, the Father knows the mind of the Spirit by definition. You know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God. So there's no sense in which the, the knowledge of one is concealed from another. So what does it mean to say that the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit's? What it means is the Father knows when he searches our hearts the witness of the Spirit on our behalf. The Father comes searching your hearts, and you think, oh, I'd rather not have him there. I'd rather not have him look in the depths of my soul and see what's actually there. I would prefer to conceal the desires of my heart. I would prefer not to be known in quite that way. But the good news is when he looks into the depths of our hearts, the spirit is there witnessing on our behalf, speaking on our behalf in the same way that we are judged by the righteousness of Christ. And the father sees us. He searches us. What he finds within us is the mind of the spirit vouching for us, so to speak, giving Uh, putting in a good word for us, as it were, because, Paul says, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even these inarticulate groanings, these, these groanings too deep for words, they are a testimony. They are the Spirit giving us not the words to say, but something less, but also more than that. These inarticulate groanings in the believer's heart are part of the Spirit's intercession 
on our behalf. The Spirit bringing us to, to long for and to need what we cannot express in words. All of it necessarily according to the will of God because these things come to us from and through the Spirit. Our desires are according to God's will to the extent that they are implanted within us through this work of the Holy Spirit, even though we cannot give it a name, even though we cannot put the need into words, somehow it still communicates for us. That's because the Holy Spirit not only works within us, but as it were, gives us the words, speaks on our behalf. Where we cannot speak, the Spirit speaks for us. Because some things truly are too deep for words. We talk a lot about longing at grace, longing for more depth, more grace, more depth, more community. When we talk about longing for more depth, the easy thing to take away from that is, is longing for more intellectual depth. Right? We are dissatisfied with the superficiality of the world and the church. We're fed up with uh, hard questions being given easy answers that don't really satisfy. We think hard questions sometimes require hard answers. And that there's lots in scripture that that is... It's not merely like superficial inspiration. Like God has actually revealed so much more to us and we want to be faithful to all of it. So, so we long for more depth of intellect. We want to understand doctrine better, that sort of thing, right? Longing for more depth, which is good. But longing for more depth means more than just intellectual depth, it's more than that. It's not just about depth of intellect. There's more to depth than intellect. But here, Paul is alluding to something not just intellectual, but the hidden depths of the heart. Groanings too deep for words that go like, like past our ability to comprehend, past our ability to formulate doctrine. A different kind of knowledge is involved. A depth of feeling, a depth of experience is being referred to here. In the same way that you can know that something is true and be unable to prove it. Like there are things that we know to be true, but we can't prove them. In the same way, you can possess feelings of truth, intuitions of truth, longings of truth that you can't even put into words, that you can't even say, you can't even communicate. You have these inward groanings. I mean, this can be frustrating. It's always frustrating to, to feel something, to, to sense something, and to be unable to express it, which is the reason why we tend to gravitate towards people and towards leaders who have that knack for putting into words what, what we feel but can't quite say. We look for people 
who can speak for us. Especially when the stakes are high. When the stakes are really high, you look for someone who can, can speak on your behalf. Whether the stakes are judicial, if you find yourself having to go to court, it's pretty ordinary and wise to have a lawyer speak for you. The more convinced you are that you can represent yourself, the more you need someone to represent you. You need someone who knows better than you to speak on your behalf. That's true in judicial stakes. It's also true in stakes of the heart. There's a reason why when it comes to expressing our love or our grief, we fall back on platitudes. We find ourselves just mouthing words that we've heard over and over again um, because we literally just can't express what we really feel. Very few of us, no matter how much we've loved another person, very few of us have ever expressed it in a way that suggests it's any different from any other love. It would be an embarrassing thing to do to go back and read love letters that you've written or love texts as as we would do now. But Lori and I had a long correspondence because when we were dating, we lived far apart. She lived here in South Dakota. I lived in Texas. You can see who the most powerful member of the relationship is based on where we live today. Um, But we had to write letters to one another and mail them in the mail. And, um, you know, I would like to think some of those letters were, were really beautiful and poetic and perhaps expressed the reality of love in a way it had never before been expressed in human language. But I don't go back and read those letters to find out. I would like to believe it, and I don't want evidence to the contrary. Because I suspect that if I were to go back and read some of the things that I had written to Lori out of love, that they would sound like, like what everybody else does in exactly the same circumstances. Right? And as moving as it was in the circumstances, in reality, it communicated very little, expressed very little of what I actually felt. And so we fall back on platitudes, We fall back on these sort of well-worn words, not because we think that saying, I love you, or uh, I grieve with you, or anything like that. It's not that we think the words are adequate. We know the words are not adequate. The words are sort of the the symbol of, of groanings too deep to utter, so that you know what I feel right now is beyond words. I'm not even gonna try. Right? That's the way we are. We, we are conscious that there is a reality that our words cannot access. Sometimes our hearts simply outpace our tongues. If you've ever thought about the perfect comeback, the perfect burn for something somebody said, but you think about it 12 hours later, you know what I'm talking about. Like You don't have the words to say in the moment that would have been perfect. If only you'd been able to, 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 to have it right there, but you don't. Like sometimes the the words only come later. Sometimes we cannot understand what's in our own hearts. Sometimes we just can't unpick our complicated feelings. It's possible to be so overwhelmed by feelings that you just can't express what you feel. Sometimes we simply don't know what to say because the words themselves are inadequate. You can say you're sorry but you know it's not enough. Like no apology has ever really been worthy of of the crime that it's meant to atone for because the words don't really express the reality of the repentance that you feel. 
funny thing is, when you say I love you, it's the same. Right? The words themselves convey very little compared to what's in the heart. So we look for people to speak for us in these instances. And the funny thing is, some of our greatest leaders, like if you look at great leaders in history, the, the thing that made them great was their ability to do exactly this, to speak for their people, to put into words the inexpressible longings of the hearts of their people. Um, things people did feel deeply, but simply couldn't express. I'm always struck by Winston Churchill, for example. I wore my uh, polka dot tie in honor of Winston Churchill, although his was a bow tie. Um, Because Winston Churchill sometimes, and and maybe this is an oversimplified way of looking at things, but you often get the impression when you study the the early years of the Second World War that, that Winston Churchill kind of fought on behalf of his nation through giving speeches. And if you've ever listened to those speeches, they're really good. Like, even if you're not currently being bombarded by by Nazi bombs, you almost wish you were, so that you could feel in solidarity with the people who are hearing these words. I don't know. It must have been bleak. It must have been disheartening to see all of Europe overrun, to see the enemy uh, bombing you day in and day out, to imagine an invasion shortly coming. Uh, It would have been good to surrender, to give up, to negotiate for peace. But then you would hear Winston Churchill give a speech and realize, no way, I will never, 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 never surrender. I can't do it, because as long as I thought of myself the way he defined me in those words, I could never do anything but fight, wherever, on the beaches, anywhere, right? The power of words. It's inexpressible, but, but, but when you see someone who can express the inexpressible, that, that kind of a leader you're drawn to. We, we remember less of the stuff he said, but Abraham Lincoln was like that. He was someone who was able to, to put the hopes of people into words. Uh, we think of uh, great speeches of John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King. Similar idea that these are words that are being essentially used to express inexpressible Longings, And once they've been spoken, somehow they become like we can own them. We can see ourselves in them. Your favorite quotations from books, your favorite lines of poetry, your favorite song lyrics often have this quality. If you ever wonder why your favorites are your favorites, it's usually because they manage to express somehow something that you feel but you couldn't put into words. If you are one of those people, by the way, who, who can never think of, of what to say, the perfect comeback, if you just try to imagine song lyrics that you could sing in response to whatever insult, oftentimes that'll help because a lot of the things that, that we cling to in song are like that. They're things that, that we would, would like to be able to express boldly but, but can't. Words that speak for us, that express our heart, Sometimes words that teach us what it is our hearts are trying to tell us about ourselves. Groanings too deep for words. As real as that phenomena is, what Paul is speaking to when he speaks to the intercession of the Spirit is actually something more than that. Something deeper than that. It's not that 
The Spirit gives us words. In another context, that's right. You know, in apologetics, we might talk about how you shouldn't have fear to talk about Jesus because in the moment, aided by the Spirit, the Spirit will give you the right words. Great. But here, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying the Spirit will give you the words. He's saying when there are no words, the Spirit will still communicate on your behalf. Something deeper than that. You may have known people who had uh, the gift of rhetoric, people who, who were never at a loss, people who always have the right comeback in every situation, who always seem to be able to express things really well, uh, people who talk good. And we say those people have the gift of the gab. Right? Language comes easy to them. They're able to express stuff that, that most of us aren't able to express. Uh, the gift of the Spirit is not the gift of the gap. The gift of the Spirit is, if anything, the gift of the groan. Something deeper that gives voice to our wordless longings to the struggles within us, to the weakness within us poured out, the transparency, the the longing that we have inside. The Spirit gives us the power, the strength to turn that into intercession, to turn that into a witness. When we go to the Lord in prayer or in all things, without the words to say, the Spirit speaks for us. And if that's true, then Paul has given us another reason to be grateful for the gift of the Spirit. Because what it means is there's a comfort that the Spirit gives us that goes deeper, that is more profound than the comfort that we've realized is ours in the Spirit. That the Spirit gives us the comfort of knowing that what needs to be said on our behalf is being said the word that needs to be spoken to represent us, the testimony that needs to happen is happening, not through our lips, but through the Spirit who works within us. If you've ever worried that God doesn't know your true heart, that your choices have not been adequately explained, that somehow there's some piece of your situation or your case that just hasn't been made. In other words, if you have anything in common with Job, who in his suffering over and over again longed to have his day in court, longed to be able to clear himself in the eyes of God, then you can take comfort that the Holy Spirit is doing that work on your behalf now. Your case is not being unargued. Your your claims are not being unpursued. The Spirit is interceding for you now, saying what needs to be said, and there's comfort in that. There's also hope. There's also hope. The hope comes from this, because the reason these groanings are too deep for words, the, the reason that, that they are inarticulate groanings is that in, in some sense they are almost imperceptible to us. We know them only through like a, a feeling. 
they're difficult for us to, to understand and process, so almost imperceptible, and yet so important. And now we discover that on this level where we can barely operate, on this level where we can barely perceive realities, where we can't not only like put the pieces together, but we can't even express what's going on down there in words. Now we're assured that God is at work there as he is everywhere else. That where we cannot perceive, God perceives. Where we cannot understand, God understands. God is working. God's will, God's plan runs that deep. And there is hope in that, realizing, realizing that God is at work in us and through us in ways that we can't even perceive. So Jesus said, if you believe in me, I will give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. If your faith is in Christ, you have received the Spirit. All those who are in Christ have received the Spirit, are indwelled by the Spirit, and because of that can be assured that they will be sanctified, assured that they will receive the inheritance that has been promised to us in Jesus Christ. And also, as we see here, be assured that even now, the the needs, the desires, the longings that you cannot even put into words, that you are hardly aware of how to express, that God hears. That God hears them because it's God who is speaking them for you. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.